Hi, I'm Valerie Loveless, and I'm just an everyday Latter-day Saint. I go to work, I have a family, I try to keep the commandments and get my scripture study in. I have a thirst for more gospel knowledge, but not always the time. If you're like me, then join me on my podcast, Everyday Saints. I'm going to take us into the topics that matter to you, pull them apart, listen to the experts and the authors, and keep you up to speed on what it is that Everyday Saints are talking about, reading, and listening to. Just search your podcast app for Everyday Saints and the Angel Moroni thumbnail. Welcome to the Come Follow Me with David Ridges podcast for the week of September 13th through 19th. This week we are studying Doctrine and Covenants, sections 102 to 105. I'm the ward cartoonist, Ari Vandegraaff. Yeah, you were probably out of town the Sunday I was sustained. I'm the author of the Super Sunday Activity Book, and I am excited to be with you today. This week's lesson centers around Zion's Camp, the company of roughly 225 men, women, and children who traveled some 900 miles from Ohio to Missouri with the intent of aiding the Missouri Saints, driven from their homes in Jackson County. Before discussing sections 102 through 105, let's review the events that led us here. To say that Joseph Smith had a lot on his plate in November 1833 wouldn't begin to capture all he was dealing with. With a major construction project taking place in Kirtland, and serious unrest 900 miles away in Missouri, Joseph probably wasn't getting much sleep. In the late spring of 1833, the Lord had reiterated his commandment to construct a temple in Kirtland. This was a huge ask for the barely three-year-old church. At the time, there were only 150 members of the church living in and around the Kirtland area. There were no architects or engineers among them, and yet the saints rolled up their sleeves and got to work. Work on the temple consumed the saints in Kirtland through the summer of 1833. Meanwhile, some 1,200 members of the church had assembled in Jackson County, Missouri, the promised land of Zion. These saints included such stalwarts as Bishop Edward Partridge, W.W. Phelps, the Joseph Knight family, and Sidney Gilbert. While Kirtland continued to be the headquarters of the church on account of Joseph's residency, Jackson County had become its chief gathering place, with nearly ten times the number of members as at Kirtland. Unfortunately, the growing Latter-day Saint numbers in Jackson County aggravated the locals. By the summer of 1833, members of the church already made up a third of the population. With increased population came the promise of increased political power, something that did not sit well with the non-Mormon population. On July 20th, 1833, in a meeting with some of the most prominent leaders in the county, including the county clerk, judges, attorneys at law, and the justice of the peace, leaders of the church in Missouri were given 15 minutes to agree to move the whole Latter-day Saint community away by the next spring or face serious consequences. Aware of the promises received in Revelation concerning the land of Zion, Church leaders understandably hesitated to agree to anything and asked for an additional ten days to consider. This was not acceptable to the delegation of non-Mormons. They resolved upon a campaign of violent intimidation. Soon, W.W. Phelps' printing press and home were razed to the ground, 
Edward Partridge and another prominent member, Charles Allen, were torn from their homes and tarred and feathered. Three days later, without the ability to coordinate with Joseph Smith or the church in Kirtland, Phelps and Partridge agreed to the Missouri mob's terms to vacate Jackson County some nine months later. What followed was months of an uneasy peace. While Jackson County leaders remained confident that the church would soon vacate their county, members of the church in both Missouri and Ohio set out to find redress for the injustice they endured. In the fall of 1833, the church hired four non-Mormon lawyers from nearby Clay County, Missouri to help in this effort. When this news leaked out, the established settlers of Jackson County were outraged. Starting on October 31st and for the next seven days, Missouri mobs attacked and harassed Latter-day Saint settlers. At first, the attacks focused solely on property, but soon turned violent after an exchange of fire resulted in the death of a member of the church and two Missourians. By November 7th, most of the saints had fled Jackson County and found temporary shelter in the neighboring Clay County, Missouri. On November 25, 1833, the church in Kirtland learned of the disturbing news of the violence in Missouri. The news weighed heavily on Joseph Smith. Twenty-one days later, Joseph Smith would receive the revelation contained in Doctrine and Covenants section 101, covered in last week's Come Follow Me podcast, which, among other things, directed the Lord's people to continue to sue for redress and to be still and know that I am God. That final direction would have been agonizing for Joseph Smith and the early saints during this uneasy time. A charge to be still, while innocent men, women, and children were chased from their homes, was likely not what the church wanted to hear. It would be another 70 days until Joseph received additional direction from the Lord as to what to do about the issues in Missouri. It's interesting to consider on those 70 days. Events in Missouri would have consumed much of Joseph's thoughts. No doubt he longed to obtain direction from heaven, yet none came. In the 57 months between April 1829, a whole year before the organization of the church, and December 1833, the month the revelation acknowledging the troubles in Missouri was received, Joseph Smith received 98 revelations that are now canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants an average of 1.7 revelations per month. Yet, it was over two months before he received revelation concerning Zion's camp. To me, this highlights a truth that can at times try our faith. God doesn't always answer our petitions on our timetable. This is something that we all likely have experienced. But it appears to be true in the case of a prophet, too. How we respond to those moments when the heavens appear closed often shape our lives more so than those times in our lives where revelation flows freely. Elder Richard G. Scott spoke extensively on this subject. In a general conference address in April 2007, he said the following, What do you do when you have prepared carefully, have prayed fervently, waited a reasonable time for a response, and still do not feel an answer. You may want to express thanks when that occurs, for it is an evidence of his trust. When you are living worthily and your choice is constant with the Savior's teachings and you need to act, proceed with trust. 
God will not let you proceed too far without a warning impression if you have made the wrong decision. In Joseph Smith's case, he continued to plead with heaven, work toward a solution to the problem in Missouri, and lead the church. In fact, in the midst of his pleadings concerning Missouri, Joseph received revelation on a separate issue, now found in Doctrine and Covenants section 102. Let's take a brief detour here and discuss that section. Section 102 deals with church governance, specifically the governance of high council meetings convened for membership councils. There is a lot of confusion over membership councils, their purpose, and the way they function. This confusion is due, in part, to the term disciplinary court that has been used in the past to describe the council. Membership councils are not intended to serve as a court meeting out punishment. Rather, they serve a threefold purpose. To save the soul of the transgressor, to protect the innocent, and to safeguard the church's purity, integrity, and good name. In most cases, membership councils take place after the member who has committed the sin warranting the council is well on the path of repentance. When done right, a membership council is a meeting where love and the Spirit are equally present. In 2020, in an update of the Church Handbook, the term disciplinary council was retired and replaced with membership council. Additional changes included a reduced role of the stake high council in the proceedings. Whereas the high council was required to participate in every disciplinary council at the stake level in the past, the High Council is now only expected to participate in membership councils where there are difficult situations, such as contested facts, the involvement of a member of the stake presidency or his family, or in cases where the member involved has specifically requested the High Council's participation. Membership councils take place at both the ward and stake level, although a bishop must first obtain approval from the stake president to convene such a council. While a bishop or stake president's counselors participate in a membership council, the ultimate outcome of that council comes from the presiding priesthood authority. Now, none of this information is secret. In fact, it is all readily available to review online or on the Gospel Library app found within the church's handbook. Membership councils need not have an air of mystery to them. Ultimately, they serve an important role in the repentance process. While much of what we do in membership councils today can be found in Doctrine and Covenants section 102, I'm grateful for the steps we've taken since 1834. Continuing revelation has, I believe, clarified the role membership councils play in the church. David Ridge's Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier includes the minutes of the first case brought to the Kirtland Stake High Council. Now, they are worth a read. To summarize, Ezra Thayer brought charges against Curtis Hodges, arguing that Hodges talked so loud at a prayer meeting that the neighbors came out to see if someone was hurt, and that at another meeting, after Hodges was rebuked by Thayer, Hodges raised his voice so high that he could not articulate so as to be understood, and that his teaching brought a damper upon the meeting and was not edifying. In the end, Hodges apologized for his error, and said he would attend to the overcoming of that evil, 
the Lord being his helper. Like I said, we've come a long way. If we were still bringing charges like fares to the council, half of the elders quorum in my ward would be facing a membership council the Sunday after every BYU-Utah football game. A week after section 102, Joseph Smith finally received the revelation concerning Zion's camp on February 24, 1834. In section 103, Joseph was commanded to lead a company of 500 men from Kirtland to Jackson to assist the saints in Missouri reclaim their homes and land. Prior to receiving this revelation, Joseph and the leadership of the church had heard some good news. Governor Daniel Dunklin was willing to call out the state militia to escort the saints back to their land in Jackson County. The purpose of Zion's camp was never to force the Missouri mob to give back the land, but to provide protection to their brothers and sisters in the gospel after they had returned home. The Zion's camp wasn't meant to be a military exhibition is evident in a careful reading of section 103. As Richard Bushman in his biography of Joseph Smith observed, the fact that the revelation references Moses leading his people out of bondage and not Joshua invading Canaan indicates the intentions of the company. Finding 500 men to embark on the 900-mile journey was no small task. Remember that just a few months earlier, the total membership of the church in Kirtland, Ohio, numbered only 150. Since the violence of November, a number of saints, including W.W. Phelps, had relocated to Kirtland, but there still wasn't enough men available in Kirtland to meet the Revelation's direction. Four pairs of missionaries, as spelled out in the Revelation, set out throughout the spring of 1834 to recruit men for Zion's camp. Joseph and Parley Pratt, for example, went on a month-long recruiting tour through Pennsylvania and New York. According to the church's almanac, the total membership of the church in 1834 was 4,372 members. Discounting the roughly 1,000 members already in Missouri and over half of the leftover 3,400 members who were women and children, the charge to find 500 men would have made up over one-third of the entirety of the available men in the church. Perhaps this is why section 103 allows for 300 men if 500 are not obtainable, or for 100 men if 300 are not obtainable. In the end, Joseph and his fellow missionaries would recruit about 205 men and an additional 25 women and children. The camp embarked from Missouri on May 1, 1834, after two months spent gathering recruits. By this point, the Missouri Saints had been displaced from their homes for over five months. A week before leaving from Missouri, Joseph took care of some additional church business in Kirtland. On April 23rd, the prophet recorded section 104 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which deals with the united order and stewardship over a number of properties in Kirtland. Included in this revelation is direction concerning the stewardship of the partially built temple. The participants in Zion's camp were a venerable who's who of early church history. Participants included Hiram Smith, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, Parley P. Pratt, Orson Hyde, and many more. One of those who joined the camp was newly baptized Wilford Woodruff. Woodruff joined the church on December 31, 1833 in New York. 
He left for Kirtland four months later after being recruited to join Zion's camp, and there met Joseph Smith for the first time. Woodruff's meticulous record-keeping would prove invaluable in our later understanding of the experience that 230 men, women, and children would have on their journey. The group that left Kirtland for the strenuous 900-mile trek didn't exactly resemble a military campaign. According to Richard Bushman, Zion's camp did attempt a mild military order, but Joseph was short on military discipline. The company, which included women and children, averaged about 25 miles per day. The men were organized into companies of 12, with a captain over each, but their duties were to cook, make fires, prepare tents, fetch water, and attend to horses, more like trail companies than a military troop. The officers were quartermaster and historian, commissaries of substance, adjutant, and captain of the guard. This regiment was accompanied by morning and evening prayers and weekly Sunday services. The camp covered most of the journey on foot. Wagons accompanied them, but were so full of baggage that they offered little relief to the weary travelers. The camp averaged 25 miles a day, and some days traveled upwards of 40 miles. Blisters, sore feet, and thirst plagued the camp. According to Nathan Bennett Baldwin, a participant of Zion's camp, in crossing these large fields of the woods, we sometimes suffered for want of water. Not being accustomed to such a country, we had not prepared for it. Sometimes we drank dew gathered from the grass by scooping a dish suddenly through the grass, which was laden with drops that would fall into the dish and, on being strained, was ready for use. George A. Smith, the prophet's 16-year-old cousin, was another participant of Zion's camp. He observed the following recollection of the experience. We suffered much from thirst and were compelled to drink water from sloughs, which were filled with living creatures. Here I learned to strain wigglers with my teeth. Given the hardships participants in Zion's camp endured, it is little surprise that contention arose from time to time. One participant, Sylvester Smith, somehow seemed to be in the center of almost every contentious event on the trip, often arguing with Joseph Smith himself. Anxiety increased after the camp entered the state of Missouri in early June. Fearful over attacks from an angry Missourians, the participants of Zion's camp were always on edge. More bad news arrived shortly after the camp arrived in Missouri. Parley Pratt and Orson Hyde brought news that Governor Dunklin had changed his mind about providing support from the state militia to provide the Jackson County Saints safe passage back to their homes. This news left the refugee Saints in Clay County and the Saints in Zion's camp exposed. Cautiously, Zion's camp continued to move toward Jackson County. On June 19th, the camp was 10 miles away from the exiled Saints in Clay County, where it stopped on a hill overlooking the Fishing River. While there, the camp was visited by five men who rode into camp and boasted that the members of Zion's camp would see hell before morning, and that a company of over 300 Missourians would soon be upon them. However, shortly after the threat was made, the skies darkened and a furious rain and hailstorm struck the area. While the members of Zion's camp were soon drenched, the mob of Missourians were unable to cross the now-flooded Fishing River. Any plans to assault the weary Zion's camp were soon abandoned. 
in a nearby church where many members of the camp found shelter, Joseph Smith declared, Boys, there is some meaning to this. God is in this storm. While the storm foiled the mob, it also slowed Zion's camp. The next day, the saints found Fishing River uncrossable. Three days after the storm, with Zion's camp still outside Jackson County, the Lord revealed to Joseph Smith that it was time to disband the company. Without the promised help from the government, it was impossible for the saints to reclaim their property without bloodshed, and as the Lord stated in Doctrine and Covenants section 105, verse 14, For behold, I do not require at their hands to fight the battles of Zion. For, as I said in a former commandment, even so will I fulfill. I will fight your battles. For the participants of Zion's camp, this must have been a bitter pill to swallow. They had traveled nearly a thousand miles, only to abandon their design a few short miles away from their goal. Things would get worse. Within days of receiving the revelation contained in Doctrine and Covenants section 105, the camp was ravaged by an outbreak of cholera. In total, 68 people, including the prophet Joseph Smith, suffered from the sickness, and 13 died, including Sidney Gilbert, Newell K. Whitney's former business partner and a prominent church leader in Missouri. From the outside looking in, Zion's camp must have seemed to be a huge failure. Yet when asked what he had gained from this useless journey to Missouri with Joseph Smith, Brigham Young replied, I would not exchange the experience I gained in that expedition for all the wealth of Geauga County, the county which Kirtland was then located. Brigham Young's response wasn't unique. Of the experience, Wilford Woodruff recounted, We gained an experience that we never could have gained in any other way. We had the privilege of beholding the face of the prophet, and we had the privilege of traveling a thousand miles with him, and seeing the workings of the Spirit of God with him, and the revelations of Jesus Christ upon him, and the fulfillment of those revelations. The early history of the church is full of remarkable experiences in the outdoors. Prior to the completion of the temple, many remarkable experiences with the divine happened in nature. The first vision, the hill Cumorah, the restoration of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, Moroni's visit to the three witnesses, and Joseph Smith's sharing of the plates with the eight witnesses all took place in forested areas. But for most of the participants in Zion's camp, they never experienced these spiritual manifestations. For saints like Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, George A. Smith, and Heber Kimball, Zion's camp must have served as their sacred grove. The experience was a powerful one for Joseph Smith as well. In a letter home, Joseph wrote that but for the absence of their families, wandering over the plains with these social, honest, and sincere men would have been as a dream, and this would have been the happiest period of all our lives. Elder David A. Bednar highlighted a couple of ways the experience of Zion's camp blessed the young church in a devotional address given at Brigham Young University, Idaho, in 2010. How did the testing and sifting that occurred in the lives of the Zion's camp participants serve as a preparation? Interestingly, nine of the brethren called into the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1835. 
as well as all of the 70s called at that same time, were veterans of Zion's camp. At a meeting following the call of the Twelve, the Prophet Joseph Smith declared, Brethren, some of you are angry with me because you did not fight in Missouri. But let me tell you, God did not want you to fight. He could not organize his kingdom with twelve men to open the gospel door to the nations of the earth and with seventy men under their direction to follow in their tracks unless he took them from a body of men who had offered their lives and who had made as great a sacrifice as did Abraham. Now the Lord has got his twelve and his seventy, and there will be other quorums of seventies called. Remarkably, even the contentious Sylvester Smith, who found much to complain about Joseph Smith and the journey while participating in Zion's camp, was part of the expanded church leadership that came out of Zion's camp. Smith was called to serve as one of the original seven presidents of the Seventy. Elder Bednar further observed, The experiences gained by the volunteers in the Army of the Lord also were a preparation for larger future migrations of church members. More than 20 of the Zions Camp participants became captains and lieutenants in two great exoduses, the first but four years in the future, involving the removal of 8,000 to 10,000 people from Missouri to Illinois, and the second 12 years in the future, the great Western movement of approximately 15,000 Latter-day Saints from Illinois to the Salt Lake and other Rocky Mountain Valleys, viewed then as a preparatory training for the larger expeditions awaiting the Latter-day Saints, Zion's camp was of immense value to the Church. 1834 was the time to show and to prepare for 1838 and for 1846. The toil and trial of Zion's camp prepared the second generation of church leadership to continue the work of Joseph and Hiram Smith, Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, and other early leaders. Efforts like Zion's camp continue to be important today. There is a reason activities like Girls Camp, Pioneer Trek, and 50 Milers continue to flourish in today's age of streaming video and video games among the youth of the church. When Moses went looking for the Lord, he went to the mountains. When Nephi was asked to consult with the Lord concerning crossing the great deep, he was told to go to the mountains. And when youth leaders look for ways to help their charge fill and recognize the Holy Ghost today, they, more often than not, go to the mountains. It's a paradox that we can come to know God both by being still, as outlined in Doctrine and Covenants section 101, and moving out of our comfort zone, as outlined in the commandment found in Doctrine and Covenants section 103 to create Zion's camp and embark on an 1,800-mile round-trip journey. I think both injunctions apply to us today, especially in the uneasy times we find ourselves now. We definitely need to be still and have faith that God is in control, that he has a prophet leading his church today, and that we can safely trust his prophet's direction in this confusing time when so many voices are giving such wildly different advice. At the same time, we should be comfortable with the idea that God will sometimes expect us to move. The scriptures are full of examples of God's hand in his people's movements. In the Book of Mormon alone, 
We have the example of the brother of Jared and his people on the shores of a great sea, Alma the elder and his people in the land of Helam, and Amulek in the land of Ammonihah. In each cases, I'm sure the participants would have happily remained where they were. But the Lord needed them to move. The Jaredites never could have been a great nation if they didn't voyage on and under the ocean to the promised land. Alma and his people were in a venerable paradise away from King Noah or Lamanite aggressors. Yet the Lord needed them in Zarahemla where they could organize the church and would bless the Nephite nation for hundreds of years prior to Christ's appearance. And Amulek probably would have been content, continuing to live in Ammonihah, enjoying the comfort that comes from being one of no small reputation, but he needed to ultimately leave Ammonihah to save both his life and his soul. When the Lord causes events in our lives where we need to move, it is often not a physical move he asks of us, but rather a spiritual move from previous habits, activities, or thoughts. We need to be ready to respond. In closing, here's Elder Bednar offering counsel on what we should take from the story of Zion's camp. At some point in each of our lives, we will be invited to march in our own Zion's camp. The timing of the invitations will vary, and the particular obstacles we may encounter on the journey will be different. But our ongoing and consistent response to this inevitable call ultimately will provide the answer to the question, who's on the Lord's side? It is my prayer that each of us will be ready to respond to the Lord's charge to either be still or to put our trust in Him as we embark on our own lengthy Zion's camp. I know that it is through these experiences that we are molded and shaped into the men and women our Heavenly Father wants us to be. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Super Sunday Activity Book is 60 pages of vividly illustrated activities for children 6 and up. Included are hidden pictures, spot the difference puzzles, crosswords, mazes, explore the scriptures, church history, and missionary work. And this engaging activity book guaranteed to make any Sunday a Super Sunday. Super Sunday Activity Book by Ari Vandegraaff. Find it at cedarfort.com.